Welcome to PMA Takes on Tech, the podcast that explores the problems, solutions, people, and ideas that are shaping the future of the produce industry. I'm your host, Bonnie Estes, Vice President of Technology for the Produce Marketing Association, and I've spent years in the ag tech sector. So I can attest, it's hard to navigate this ever-changing world in developing and adopting new solutions to industry problems. Thanks for joining us and for allowing us to serve as your guide to the new world of produce and technology. My goal of the podcast is to outline a problem in the produce industry and then discuss several possible solutions that can be deployed today. This week's podcast is being sponsored by Payne Schwartz Partners. A global leader in sustainable food chain investing, Payne Schwartz Partners is a private equity firm with a demonstrated 20-plus year track record of investments across the food and agribusiness value chain. The firm leverages a thesis-driven approach and operational expertise to enhance value across its portfolio. Please visit www.payneschwartz.com to find out more about the firm and its activities. Today, we will listen to a conversation I had with Sarah Nolette on her podcast, Ag Tech So What? Sarah is extremely knowledgeable around all things ag tech. Along with the podcast, she is a partner with Matthew Pryor in Agthentic, an advisory group, and also Tenacious Ventures. Sarah and Matthew recently announced the final close of their first VC fund, raising $26.8 million from a diverse group of limited partners to target seed and Series A rounds. Our conversation spans many areas of mutual interest from molecular breeding to carbon markets to biologicals and supply chain. Let's jump in. Hello and welcome to Ag Tech So What, brought to you by the Agthentic Group. I'm your host, Sarah Nolette. I'm really excited about today's guest, Vani Estes. Not only is she an industry leader in food and ag, but she's also refreshingly candid about her own experiences working for large and small ag and food companies. This is Vani remembering the U.S. biofuels craze of the mid-2000s. They said, build these gigantic plants. And my job at the time, I was working for DuPont and I was in charge of a program that we were looking at converting corn stover into fuel. And I had, it was a beaker in a lab. Like that's, that's where my technology was. It was a beaker, you know, fermenting in a lab. And, and people were saying, here's a check for a hundred million dollars, go build a, you know, hundred million gallon ethanol plant. So it was a lot of push without really looking at the system. These days, Vani is the vice president of technology at the Produce Marketing Association or PMA. Her role is to help fruit and vegetable growers and industry to adopt and integrate new technologies. Previously, Vani's worked for Monsanto, Syngenta, and with numerous ag and biotech startups. In this episode, you'll hear some of the hard lessons she's learned along the way, what the future of gene editing might look like, and the parallels between the hype around biofuels two decades ago and the hype around soil carbon today. But first, this is how Vani came to join the ag and food world. So I got my undergraduate degree from New Mexico State University in horticulture and worked for a little bit in greenhouses and realized that I was never going to pay any bills <laughs> working in greenhouses. But I, I did have kind of that early experience of, of working in, in indoor ag as a greenhouse. And then I went to UC Davis and got my master's degree in plant pathology. 
And so that was kind of the beginning of that. And, and my first job out of graduate school was working with a company called DNA Plant Technologies, which was one of the very early genetically engineering plant companies that it doesn't exist anymore. But that was a, a really exciting time. I got to be on very early stages of what was happening with genetic engineering and crops and, and where that could go. And so for the next 15 years, I worked in kind of ag biotech and that whole area really on the cutting edge of what is this technology? What can we do with it? How can we grow more sustainably? You know, how can we make better crops? Um, so that was a, a really exciting time working. I worked for DNAP, like I said, and a company called Paradigm Genetics and worked for Monsanto for a while. And also worked for a company that was buying seed companies all over the world and, and helping integrate some traits into those. Vani was at Monsanto in the mid-1990s. It was a time when Roundup could be found in garages across suburbia, used commonly as a spray for weeds. But for agriculture, the 90s brought about major leaps in biotech when Monsanto introduced the first Roundup-ready seeds in soybeans, corn, and cotton using genetic modification. At the time, the science was revolutionary, but no one imagined how much pushback there'd be against GMOs. Vani was right in the middle of this and learned a lot about social license. You know, now when you say you worked for Monsanto, like everybody cringes, but um, so that was in the mid 90s. And I know there's, I'm sure there are conversations in the boardroom that are different than this, but for me being there, it was, we had these cool tools, like we can do these really cool things so that you don't have to spray insecticide and so that you don't have to till and so that you can do all these other things that are more sustainable. So the conversations internally were like, this is really cool stuff and this is going to allow us to grow more sustainably. So that, that was the conversation and what we completely missed out of arrogance certainly was that we kind of needed to bring people along with us on that, in that little journey of that thought process and and so when when it wasn't communicated to consumers in a good way and consumers didn't certainly didn't see any benefit for them in bt cotton then you know that's when a lot of the the problems happened but it's really interesting to think back on to me it was it was quite exciting that the technology could do this and and really seeing the the miss steps that happen from a communication social license point of view. Yeah, for sure. Was there ever a moment or a story of like consumer pushback or like so something happening where you started to realize maybe you got it wrong or that how you guys were thinking about it internally was really different than how the world was seeing it? Yeah, I, I actually I'll tell you a more recent story that's, that, that is even reflects on me worse. <laughs> so I was up in, <laughs> I was up in uh, Washington state summer before last, uh, before COVID and we were still traveling. And I was talking, we were doing grower visits and we did a dinner with a bunch of apple growers. And I was talking about the Arctic apple, which is a GMO apple, right? And non-browning, great sustainability food waste story. I think they've done a pretty good job of, you know, communicating to consumers. They don't hide it. They tell people this is GMO. And so I'm, we're at this brewery outside. There's like hops growing in the background. It was really beautiful. And so I start talking about technology because that's my job. You know, I start talking about technology and there's all these great technology and then it's coming to apples. And, and I start talking about the Arctic apple and I just see the room just go dead. Well, it wasn't it was outside, but I see the group go dead and the eyes like daggers. And I'm like, this is very familiar. Like <laughs> I remember this and I just, I, 
of all people, I should know not to, you know, bring up a topic like that until you really understand how it affects the people in the room and, and what their feelings were. And their main feeling about it was that before Arctic Apple, when they were trading outside the country, like when they were selling their apples, they never had to answer the question, is this GMO? And so that was one of, they said, you know, we're, we're getting hit, we're getting the negatives and not the positives about this. So that was a, that was an interesting flash forward 20 years later that, you know, you really need to pay attention to who you're talking to and how you talk to them about technology and food. Yeah. My sense is that the industry hasn't fully learned this lesson and because it's not an easy one to learn that we say now, oh, we need to listen more and we need to have more conversations and highlight the benefits. And then we sort of do that but the response isn't really all that different. And yet at the same time, there's lots of research about how agriculture is really trusted and we have all this goodwill and people do believe in farmers. So I I guess my sense is, I don't know what we do differently. Do you have a good sense of how to do this differently or or any hope around what's changing? Well, I think we've got another opportunity with gene editing. And I've worked in gene editing at a couple different companies and done a lot of consulting work on gene editing. And and so one of the difference, the big differences is that we can do a lot of good consumer traits with gene editing. And so if you lead with a trait that consumers want, like if you have better tasting strawberries or a pitless cherry or foods that are more convenient, foods that are more nutritious foods that have a better sustainability story that you communicate correctly, I think consumers are going to come along. And I think, you know, it's possible like through COVID and, and some people getting a better understanding of science and what science can really do to help us, that there's going to be a more openness to what is science doing for our food in a way that's helping me. So I'm, I'm hopeful. And I think we're trying to do the right things with gene editing of, you know, this really can help with climate change. I mean, so many crops are going to have to be grown in different places or different varieties are grown differently because of climate change. And, and this is the way that, that this is one way that we can do something about that. What's the conversation like with growers? You're now at PMA and you'd be talking to companies that are on the production side and marketing side as well, thinking about how to have these conversations, but also what technologies to invest in and adopt and which ones maybe to wait a little longer and kind of see how it goes. What's the sense from industry around gene editing in particular, but kind of ag tech more broadly? I think with gene editing, it, there's a real fear of production, breeding and production companies that they don't want to be first. They don't want to be the ones that the consumer says, oh, you know, you're the biggest blueberry company and we know that you're using gene editing. We're not going to buy it. And they don't want the blowback. And so I, it's, I think we're in this really funny state right now because lots of companies are using gene editing in their breeding programs, but they, they're keeping it very separate. So you don't, you know, hear me that is not mixing. People are not doing it on the slide, but they're keeping very separate breeding programs just to see what the technology can do. But they're afraid because they don't want the consumer backlash. And so I think, you know, there's companies like Pairwise that's in North Carolina that's doing a lot of breeding in produce. And I think, you know, and they're straight out front, like, that's what we are. We're a breeding company. We use gene editing and we're going to come out with these four crops. And I think companies like that being out in front and and seeing what the benefits are is going to help and it's going to, you know, producers will be willing to grow it if there's pull on the other side. And I think one of the examples that I use and, and other people use this too is looking at like impossible foods and the impossible burger. So that is GMO soy and they use a heme protein that's made in a genetically modified yeast. 
and people can't get enough, right? And they're they're probably you know they're going to IPO, they're going to really be big. <laughs> and so I think if you if you can be upfront, be transparent with consumers, and give them something they really want, then that's going to bring things forward. Hmm. How do you think that gene editing will change, or will it change, sort of supply chain dynamics and kind of who owns what part of the industry? Like, does ownership change when these more companies have access to gene editing, or can differentiate in different ways at different parts of the supply chain? Like, does it actually shift how traditional lines have been drawn in terms of who does breeding and then who does growing and who does marketing? Do you see more vertical integration, more fragmentation? That's a really interesting question. I think. In a lot of, you know, if you look at corn and soy now, you know, big, you know, broad acre crops. I mean, you have people that do the science and own the germplasm and sell the seeds. Those crops, I don't think it's going to change. I think it'll be interesting in some of the crops that I work in more in the produce area, because those companies that have the germplasm probably aren't going to invest in the tools and and hiring the people to to do that work and I've I've done some projects with a variety of people trying to look at okay say we want to do gene editing and table grapes how do we do it like how do, how do we even do it it makes sense to me for it to stay separate and for there to be like platform based companies that do genome mapping and that do the actual edits and that test in the greenhouse and i'm i'm hoping that those companies stay separate from the germplasm companies because it just doesn't make sense for say a great producer to make big investments in that type of technology that should be a separate platform company and as far as the like how the value goes, you know, that's what these companies have to look at, like who captures the value and where's that value captured. And that's a lot of what these companies that are doing the breeding, they're like, how, how do I get to capture the value that happens at the, you know, Kroger store? Like, how do I get that value? And so that is something that I think everyone's trying to work out as if you're, if you're capturing consumer value, how does that go back to the genetics company? And that isn't worked out yet, but I I think those are going to be interesting conversations. These questions like who pays and what business models will win are not just playing out with gene editing, but also with all kinds of emerging technologies in food and ag. Soil carbon markets are another very hot example. Yeah, I listened to your last podcast that was talking about carbon, which was fabulous because it's it's such a hot area. And there are there are some parallels, I think, in in just trying to figure out who owns what and where does the value accrue. I think it's a little different because it's right now that that whole breeding and all of that is is just it's better set up, it's more established. And I think with carbon markets, it's the wild west right now of like, what are we trying to do? And what is the government going to do? And what are the tools we're going to use? And and how do we affect this huge system? You, you can't just have something that measures soil carbon that, and, and that's all you have. You know, you have to have this whole system that it fits in. And so I think that's that's the the broader thing with carbon that I think is pretty fascinating. And you've drawn parallels to biofuels. In, and I'm really curious to hear your thinking there. And I would say probably U.S. listeners are decently familiar with biofuels and kind of what's happened, maybe international listeners or Australian listeners less so. So maybe give us a little bit of a 101 there and why you see parallels with carbon. All right. So I um, 
when I was talking about my history. So ag tech kind of ended up consolidating into a very small number of companies. And so I was kind of off looking for the next thing because I didn't want to work for another Monsanto and I really wanted to stay in more cutting edge technology. And so this was in the early 2000s, like 2004, and everyone was really looking for, you know, we need a different source. We, we need something besides oil and gas because the prices were going up so high. And so everyone started looking at biofuels. And first it was corn ethanol, which I was personally less interested in just because it, it, there was no great technology leaps we were going to have there. And so we started looking at second generation fuels is what I ended up working on for 10 years of my career. And that was taking either crop residue or crops that were grown specifically for energy crops like sorghum and switchgrass and scampus. There's a number of others that were grown um, to make biofuels. And so this kind of got going. And this was one of the parallels that I was thinking about with carbon is like, so in 2007, then President Bush made a comment in the State of the Union address about switchgrass. And then suddenly like switchgrass was a thing and everyone was working on switchgrass. And the government started putting so much money and said that there was going to be 35 billion gallons of ethanol by 2017 that was going to be made. And, and half of that was going to be from second generation fuels. So lots of money started pouring in and people who'd been very quietly, you know, studying switchgrass and some of these other things, you know, just they were in the limelight and so much money went into this. So the, the U.S. government tried to create this market by saying, you're going to produce this amount of fuel. And they put a bunch of money and they picked companies to put money in. So in 2007, they invested over a billion dollars into developing the technology for this. But they started... They started with the technology at a really high level. They said, build these gigantic plants. And my job at the time, I was working for DuPont and I was in charge of a program that we were looking at converting corn stover into fuel. And I had, it was a beaker in a lab. Like that's, that's where my technology was. It was a beaker, you know, fermenting in a lab. And, and people were saying, here's a check for $100 million, go build a, you know, 100 million gallon ethanol plant. So it was a, it was a lot of push without really looking at the system with, you know, one without looking at what technology do we need? What's the state of technology and what's, what entire system do we need to change for this to work? And then letting the government pick winners and losers. So I think when we look at carbon now, that's, that's, you know, the government's got to be involved because they set admissions, they, you know, they set a lot of the standards. So the government's going to be involved. But how do we make sure that we're going after this in the right way and we're not getting too far ahead, putting too much money in when the technology is not ready? Mm. And do you see parallels now with like Biden's talk about climate change and a possible carbon bank and the conversations today? Yeah. And that, that's what kind of, you know, it's like, uh, I, you know, I've, I've lived this before. <laughs> and so I'm, I'm actually very interested in it. And I'm starting to dig deep into it, too, just because it is it is the next shiny thing, you know. And so I'm really interested in, and have talked to a number of startups that are thinking about different ways of doing things and how do you measure. And, and I'm putting together some conversations at PMA about how do we get the people that are thinking about it? You know, like some of the people you've had on your podcast, you know, from car and from General Mills and those people that are having those conversations, how do we talk to produce about that? You know, how does the produce get involved in it and how to, how do they get something out of it? How do they not go down the wrong path? How do they make money, not lose money? So yeah, I, I think it's a, it's a very exciting time, but there's, there's a lot of pitfalls and just, you know, fools rush in. I mean, the amount of money, 
that the government may put in the wrong place. And, you know, here in the U.S., when suddenly all of the venture capitalists are trying to string together the carbon buzzwords and, you know, fun things, I think we just, you know, need to be kind of cautious. <laughs> Hundred percent. I talked to an investor this week who was saying, "Wow, you guys are really understanding this carbon stuff. You know, great to hear it on the podcast. You've made the investment in Nori. We just feel like we don't know enough yet, and we're going to always be behind the curve because it's moving so fast. And the people that are on the top of the wave are just going to stay on the top of the wave, and so we'll just stay out." Which I thought was really interesting um, versus others who are like all in, and so you're almost already seeing the kind of fragmentation and whether more capital will come in or everyone will go out too confusing, just see what happens and let it crash. Or actually, this is really big. We need to get involved. So we'll, we'll see, I guess. <laughs> well, I think, you know, at least in the US, when the government starts putting money in, then I think that gets investors interested and will, you know, they'll start pushing along because they'll, they'll know that that money's there. And so, you know, a lot of what happened with biofuels is there was a company called Range Fuels that they, I think they got, I don't know, I'm going to get the exact numbers wrong, but it's around 200 million from the government. And then Vinod Koshla came in and put in a whole bunch more money. And so I think that pushes things along. And so I think in the US, you know, with all the people looking at climate change and, you know, the DOE will, so it just, it, it kind of mitigates the risks a little bit for some investors. So I think, I think we will see, you know, investors rushing in and I, you know, hopefully we're just smarter about it because it's a good, I mean, we're solving a very important problem. I don't want to make it sound like I think it's, you know, the wrong thing to do. It's just, you know, cautionary. Hmm. Yeah. That's kind of what I was going to ask is how do we balance the sense of potential hype or frothiness with the actual need to have solutions to climate change, like writ large period, but also ones that enable growers to be profitable and meaningfully participate. Any any kind of thinking on how growers can and should be getting involved, especially in produce? Yeah, I think that's that's something I'm exploring right now. I because I I certainly don't want to get people involved with, you know, here, buy this, buy this other new tool, you know, or try this other new thing. And and you're already you're already putting the risk and the cost on the grower. And, you know, we've talked about this before that that's, that's not where it belongs. And so how do, how do we incentivize them in a way that makes them interested and that, uh, that it mitigates the risk from them? And so I think with carbon sequestration, you know, look at trees. I mean, you look at all the trees that, that grow produce and like that, that's a pretty good deal. You know, you got a lot of carbon that's staying there for a long time. And so we should be able to figure out a way that if that's what we're looking to, to do is, is to reward that, you know, then there, there should be a way to do that without them having to bear a lot of costs. So it is something that I'm exploring right now. And I, I, I don't know the answer. And because, the carbon systems that are getting set up, you know, through places like Indigo and FBN and some of the, the commercial carbon systems aren't really looking at the produce industry. And so I just want to be cautious to not get people into something that that then ends up being so much work and so much time just trying to figure out what tools do I use to measure it and, you know, filling out the forms that it, it's not worth it. That's for sure. The number one thing we see in here from growers is the sense of it's a lot of work for a very uncertain benefit other than the practices that I can do that improve soil health and create a more productive farm and all those things obviously make sense. But any of this exploration of other credits or markets feels a bit tenuous right now, especially in produce. Maybe I'll just wait. Where we have seen a difference is when it can be consumer facing, like wine brands, for example, looking at branding as a carbon neutral winery or when they actually have that connection to consumers, especially around sustainability. What are you kind of seeing in that space? Certainly with 
consumer-facing brands where you can tell that story, then there's going to be a real plus there of, of how to tell that story and, and consumers hopefully will pay for it. I'm not seeing... I'm trying to think of anything that I've seen that is specifically pulling through yet. And consumers, I mean, we've found this on everything. You know, cons- you, you put a bunch of people in a focus group and you, know, you and I would be guilty as well. It's not saying anything negative about anybody, but you, know, you say, oh, would you pay more for this great benefit? Of course I would. But then you put them in front of a shelf and you look at their basket and they really won't. You know? <laughs> so I, we say this about to, to startups who are testing their market where it's like the diet question when you say, would you like to have a six pack and you know, a beach body and all these things? Like, yes, of course. Great. And you give them the celery versus the cheeseburger and they choose the cheeseburger every time. It's like what people say they'll do is not actually what they'll do. And that's pretty challenging. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, definitely. I for a while I was working in biocontrols and it was a consumer brand. And so we we had a number of biocontrol consumer brands and we put them in the in the aisle of the garden stores, you know, and these things did they were before their time, they did not sell. And so we started saying, you know, people want legs up, people want to see bugs, legs up, you know. So I think it's it's hard. And it and I think you know, that we see this in all sorts of back tech companies, you know, you see this as well, is that people go and they talk to two or three really forward thinking producers. And then they think, okay, I can base a business on this, you know, and it doesn't always work out that way. You mentioned biocontrols. I'm really curious what you're seeing in this space is, is the time now for that. And it's exactly, as you said, a kind of psychology problem with some of these products, like, does it actually work? How do we know? And what are you seeing in terms of solving that psychological problem and just bio inputs, I guess, and more broadly is, is the time come? Yeah, I think the time has come, I think, for several reasons. One is the reason that you say is that we're actually able to measure it now much better than we were, you know, 15, 20 years ago. And the products have gotten so much better. They've gotten a lot more specific and they just work better. And I think also because we're starting to see resistance and, you know, a lot of like insecticides and fungicides and and some of the biocontrols don't have that resistance. And, And maybe it's not you can stop using pesticides completely, but you can, you know, you can mix them so that you can use those other chemicals a little bit longer because they don't build up resistance. So I do think that time is now, and I think it's really exciting. So I, I beat my head against that one for about five years and it just, uh, partly just products just weren't good enough. So, you know, you have to have a product that works, but I think, I think they are now. And, and I think just, it, you know, with all the, all we're looking at in the soil and, and using uh, microbials in the soil and all the things that we can do and test and understand what's happening in the soil. I think it, it's really positive. That's a, an exciting area. Vonnie's also excited for the future of plant breeding, which has always been her first passion since the greenhouse days. But now she sees breeding as a critical tool to help meet some of the big climate challenges we're facing. So you're going to have a lot of issues where you're not going to have as much water if it's not, you know, places that aren't irrigated or even if they are irrigated and you won't have enough water to put on. So I think certainly drought resistance is a big one. I think there's going to be areas that are going to freeze where they didn't freeze or not freeze where they used to freeze. And so, you know, that's, that was, that's why blueberries expanded, you know, why, why they did was through genetics where you could grow them where you couldn't grow before. And that wasn't GMO, that's just genetics. So I think there's a, a lot of just the climates are changing, you know, hotter and colder and wetter and drier, and we need to be able to respond to those. And breeding is a, a great way to, to be able to do that. Storm events, you know, too much, too much water or too much wind or, you know, all sorts of pests that blow in that weren't there before, you know, what kind of resistance can you get? So I think there's, there's a lot, you know, breeding takes a little longer, 
I don't know, developing a new pesticide takes a long time too, but, but breeding is, you know, it's just kind of a better way if you can, if you can do it through breeding. Yeah. And do you see one of the things we've dug into is this kind of changing landscape due to climate change and how these weather events will be more extreme, but also certain things won't be able to be produced in certain areas or other things will be able to produce there that weren't, but we don't have the supply chain infrastructure. Do you see this combination of new breeding technologies and pressures from climate re-engineering landscapes, like changing what it means to be a farmer, like our companies going to have to move locations. Will they have stranded assets and have to do something else with them? Like what's the kind of shift in, again, how the structure of the industry or even what the landscape looks like might be? I, I think that's likely to happen, you know, maybe over a longer period of time. But I think one of the things that's happening anyway is that people are starting to think about monoculture and do I really want to just be growing this one crop and, you know, maybe I can grow different crops and I think that's going to continue to happen and and that's climate change and just do we need this much corn? I, I think that's, and it's just my view, but I think that's going to happen slow enough that the, that the supply chain can kind of react to that. It's not going to be like, you're going to have to change this tomorrow. Right. And how about other countries getting involved in this? Like we've, we've done a little bit of work looking at the Middle East and obviously Singapore has massive food security goals. Some other countries are looking at how do we think about food security? How do we think about breeding and using these technologies to grow things here that we maybe couldn't or now that we have to? Is that a trend you're seeing? Well, certainly I, I, I've been having conversations in Singapore this week. And so they import 90% of their food. And especially during COVID, like this was a very scary time for them. And so the government has started to pump quite a bit of money into looking at eggs, fish, and vegetables are the three areas. And they're trying to produce 30% of their food in Singapore by 2030 and putting lots of systems in place. And it's, it's vertical. Like all they can do is vertical. Like they, they can't go out, you know, they have to go up no to go. and they were, uh, one guy was, yeah. One guy was telling me about, they're doing like vertical sheep farming, which I just can't imagine, but, um, <laughs> you know, they're, some of them are on the 20th floor, but that's certainly happening in Singapore where they're looking at, you know, using different technologies. And I think, you know, countries like Brazil are certainly adopting a lot of different technologies and looking at, you know, what else can we grow? How can we grow it? How can, you know, how can we do this better? So it's certainly happening globally. Vani also predicts a shakeup in some of the traditional food supply chains. And so when you look at, you know, the whole supply chain starting from that first mile of like, you know, leaving the farm gate, getting all the way to retailer food service in the produce industry and like all, all that needs to happen there. And I, I don't know if you've seen it, the landscape map on the supply chain that Shauna Day and, and Britta Rosenheim have done. It's amazing how many different companies are in there. And they really looked at the different verticals and how do we do supply chain that works, you know, that really goes all the way from the farmer to the retailer and what kind of systems need to be in place. And there's all sorts of systems that, you know, computer vision systems and just the traceability that's important. And so I think that's an area that's really under invested in and super important. And, And especially I think since COVID, you know, really exposed how scary that supply chain is. I think people are starting to look at it differently. And I was talking to a company the other day, Swarm Engineering, and it's a bunch of guys from Microsoft. And they're really looking at how do we do this logistics system all the way through and and figure out how to save money and, and really support the industry. And so I think I think that's an area 
not exactly the area I, I know the most about, but I think it's a really important area for food to really understand, you know, how, how can we do things there? There's so much going on in the field and a lot of the, and I know you guys work in this area a lot, a lot of the robotics and the automation and artificial intelligence and then what's happening in the field. And I, I was talking to a company the other day about this and I almost had this feeling of, oh yeah, this. And it's, it's so ridiculous that I'm thinking that this is just like old hat, you know, cause it's, it's amazing, you know, it's amazing what they're doing. And I think it's, you know, the adoption on that is going to be slower. I think it may be faster in some ways in produce because the farms are smaller and the information is more valuable, but it is amazing what's happening. Like being able to know exactly when to pick and, and knowing exactly which apple flowers to, to reduce so that you have a better crop and, and really using AI to be able to see almost every plant and make a decision on, you know, how to treat that. So it's pretty amazing. Yeah. We're actually seeing that connect to the supply chain point you made before, where when you have more information about what's happening in the field, what does that mean for how you can re-engineer the supply chain? Do you need as much cold chain infrastructure or do you need different kinds of logistics support when you know basically ahead of time what you're going to pick or when it's going to be ready or what you're going to do in the field that's going to be highly responsive to what consumers want and on demand, does that actually change how supply chains look and work? And to your point before, who creates and captures value? That's an area we're really excited about. Yeah. And so how do you look, when you look at that whole, what you just said, that whole piece, I mean, how do you look at interoperability? Like, how do you talk to people about that and how that's, I think, one of the biggest issues. It's like, you've got 20 dashboards and, you know, all those different pieces of data. And so I, I guess just, you know, all industries go through a process of maturing and that fitting together. But have you seen anyone that's trying to kind of crack that? Not, I mean, we've seen people trying to crack it both from like a we'll build dashboards and we'll be a kind of power BI or whether they're ag tech specific or not, kind of aggregate data and give you your view of it, which I think is interesting, probably hard to get to venture scale, but useful tools that we see growers really, really appreciating right now. There's I think a play around some kind of open source approach to creating the standards and helping build the pipes in this space. The challenge is there's a lot of initiatives doing that open ag data initiative and different industry specific initiatives to say, here's how we talk about vine rows, or here's how we talk about broad acre cropping and what the farm looks like. It really can be a whole of industry approach, but who has the incentive to do that? Who wins? And that's where we are increasingly thinking about open source. You know, how do you create the harness the momentum of the community to build those tools, but you can still have a venture scale business model, which I think you do need and world-class tech and software talent because it really is a tech play. But right now we're in the kind of early stage of industry maturity where everyone's building their own APIs, doing their own work to connect the dots. And that just makes it more confusing. But over time, I think we'll see more standards and more pipes being built. And there are opportunities there for sure. Yeah. Do you, so do you think that, sorry, I'm, I'm interviewing you that's now. Okay. Yeah, yeah, great. <laughs> so do you think that's five years? Do you think that's eight years? I mean, gosh. What? Yeah. I mean, we, we haven't seen any companies that are doing that, that we would necessarily bet on. We're starting to see companies recognize that problem and think about how it might be solved. So that's exciting. And, and if you look at a venture timeframe, then, you know, maybe it's five years, three to seven, ideally for, for venture capital. But I would say we're, that's probably the next phase of industry maturity. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. It's, it's, it has to happen and it happens in other industries, but it just, it's hard to get uh, sight on like how long that's going to take. and and how everybody fits into that. That's it for this episode of PMA Takes on Tech. 
Thanks for allowing us to serve as your guide to the new world of produce and technology. Be sure to check out all our episodes at pma.com and wherever you get your podcasts. Please subscribe and I would love to get any comments or suggestions of what you might want me to take on. For now, stay safe, eat your fruits and vegetables, and we will see you next time.